Hey everyone, welcome to the Prince of Peace podcast, where our aim is to help you live and love like Jesus. I'm Lauren Hlaud, one of the pastors of Prince of Peace. We're glad that you're here and we hope you enjoy. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I'm glad that you're listening. The sermon this last week was centered around Mark chapter 12, where Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the scribes who who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. Um, Jesus turns the disciples' attention to a poor widow. And today's sermon explores um, the words of Jesus surrounding this widow. I hope that you get something out of this sermon, and I hope it encourages you to live and love like Jesus. Without further ado, here's this week's sermon. How do you hear the words of Jesus in today's passage? So often we focus on simply hearing the words, but I want to know how do you hear them? What sort of tone do you hear these words through? This familiar passage to many of us about the widow's might, as it's affectionately known, it's a scene that we could imagine, right? There are people putting in large sums of money in the treasury, and then this poor widow comes and puts two small coins. How do you hear the words that Jesus uses to describe the scene? Do you hear it as praise? Praise for this woman who, out of her poverty, gave all, trusted God with her whole life to provide for her. This is a common way that I think we we hear these words. It's a common way that I've heard these words. It's a common way that I've preached this passage before. That Jesus is lifting up this poor widow who gives all that she has. It's this great example of stewardship and faith and trust that God would provide. It's a faithful interpretation. But this week as I was studying and as I was looking through Mark's gospel, I, I heard the words of Jesus with a very different tone. And that's what I want to explore this morning. Could it be possible that, that Jesus isn't so much offering praise up about her, but he's actually offering a lament a lament for her, a lament of the whole situation. And I think if we look at the context surrounding this passage, that might begin to emerge for us. If you go back one chapter in Mark chapter 11, we hear that Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He, he enters into Jerusalem, and from that point moving forward in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to be in a confrontation with the religious leaders at the temple. Most of this takes place there in the temple, in the temple courtyards as Jesus begins to um, engage in dialogue and his words are often harsh. He goes on by explaining after his entry into Jerusalem, he gives us that little um, image of the fig tree that is now cursed. What once uh, bore fruit, what, what was designed to bear fruit, is now cursed. It's withered. And then Jesus makes his way into the temple in Mark chapter 11, and he cleanses the temple. He says, is it not written, my house, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is Jesus angry about? He's angry that they're, that they're exchanging money in the temple so that poor widows, so that everyday people could buy a dove or a lamb or a goat to offer up as a sacrifice. And Jesus becomes enraged by this. In other Gospels, we see Jesus flipping the tables over, throwing the coins all over the temple floor. From there, Jesus goes on to explain this withered tree. This isn't God's intention for the temple, and it's not God's intention for the people. We move our way into chapter 12, and at the beginning, Jesus tells this parable of the tenants, about the one who is put in charge of the vineyard and how people come and they, they kill and they steal and they rob. And Jesus explains this parable, unpacking for us the role of the prophets throughout the ages the prophets that were ignored, the prophets that were abused. And in the parable, the son is put in charge of the vineyard, but then what do they do to the son? They kill him, right? Jesus, nonetheless, pointing to himself. The point here is that they've missed the point, that they've perverted religion, that they've perverted the role of the temple, and then we get this part right before our passage about the widow, about the greatest commandment, and I find this really interesting. We're told that one of the scribes comes up to Jesus, and he asks Jesus a question, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, right? Now what's interesting is how the scribe responds to Jesus. The scribe said to him, Yeah, you're right, Jesus. You truly have said that God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and understanding and strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, well, that's much more than all of these burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you, you're not far from the truth. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? The scribe echoes exactly what Jesus says. But Jesus doesn't respond with, yep, you've got it 100% correct. Instead, Jesus says, you're not far. What is this about? Well, I think that what Jesus is pointing out is that this scribe represents so many of the authorities and leaders at the time. They have all the right theological answers, and they seem to be concerned with right theology. The scribe says, yeah, yeah Jesus, you're right. You said God is one. Check. You named the commandment, check, so you're okay. And what Jesus points him back to is, you're not far from the truth. You know that this is true, but I wonder if Jesus says, you're not far, because there's a disconnect in this scribe's life from right theology and right living. You're not far from the truth. 
You know the answers, but it doesn't seem to be lived. It doesn't seem to be lived. And right after this, Jesus goes on to describe the scribes in a very unflattering manner. Imagine, if you will, that the scribe is still within earshot of Jesus. As Jesus says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and have the best seats in the synagogue and they like to be greeted with honor and they say long prayers for appearance' sake. Beware of them. Jesus has been picking a fight in his father's house. And then Jesus takes his disciples and they sit down and he has them observe the treasury. And there are the people putting in large sums of money. The scribes, if you will. Those who are worried about their appearance. And Jesus points out this widow who out of her poverty gave all that she had Now we can look at that and we can say what faith and trust this widow had that God would provide for her, what faith and trust she had, but with all of this context in mind and what follows in chapter 13, maybe, just maybe, Jesus is lamenting the fact that this poor widow is giving to a corrupt and perverse temple. These scribes, they devour widows' houses. They take all that they have. They lead them astray. Maybe Jesus is lamenting the system of injustice that this woman is caught up in. Why do I think this is so? Because when they walk out of the temple, right after this scene, in chapter 13, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. The disciples are still so caught up in the majesty of the temple. Look at these beautiful buildings. Look at these beautiful stones. Isn't the temple just awe-inspiring? And Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus wants the temple to crumble. He says it's all going to topple over. And God will raise up a new spiritual home. And this new spiritual home, well, it must live inside of every child of God. And the burning desire of this spiritual fire will be concerned with the poor, the widow, the orphaned, and the prisoner. All along Jesus' ministry, this is what he is concerned about. He is concerned about the plight of the orphan and the widow, and yet he's doing ministry in a context that is so concerned with long prayers and robes and beautiful buildings. And Jesus is pointing people back to the heart of the Creator, which is to care for those in our midst who, quite frankly, we honestly don't even notice. This is convicting for me. This is really convicting because if I'm honest with you, I worry a whole lot about my words. 
I spend hours every week when I'm preaching, crafting a sermon and, and wanting them to be perfect and, and creating classes. And I worry a lot about this, this sanctuary and this building and this ministry. And I know that God uses all of this for good. But if I'm honest with you, I think sometimes Christianity and our culture and in our country, well, we're caught between these, these hard places, right? We've built up this system for ourselves called the religious industrial complex where we have big mortgages and, and, and ministries that we have to support and, and sometimes we feel the tension that all of that sucks our time up and, and yet God is calling us to care for those in our midst that are hurting and yearning and And sometimes, if I'm honest, I don't leave myself enough margin for that. I still believe that the church and the local congregation is the best place to to enact change and and care for people. I I know that, that, that the church can be used for good, but the church has to have its eyes set on what Jesus is looking at. Right? This week I was reminded of this in a powerful way as as I went and I sat with one of our widows went to the home of Joanne Swanson, who years before lost her husband. And she's been an active member here for the last few years, but recently she's had some some medical challenges, and she's been home. And as I sat with her, we held hands and we prayed, and as she shed tears, describing how much this community means to her, how much the support the shoulders to lean on, how much the community of other widows who know her grief means to her. I was reminded of what Jesus is looking at. He's looking at those of us that are hurting and yearning inside to be set free. He's looking at those of us that are caught up in our grief as we miss our spouses, our loved ones who have gone on. Jesus is looking at those in our midst who are terrified that somebody might find out that they have to declare bankruptcy. And they're wondering how life will be pieced back together. Jesus is looking at those of us who are caught up in our addictions and don't know how to be truthful with ourselves. Jesus is looking at those young students in our school districts who go to school hungry. Jesus is looking at each and every one of us. May we have eyes to see. May we have hearts to feel. May we have a revival of spirit so that our words and our actions would actually be true, that that when we say we want to live in love like Jesus, that, that we would actually want to live in love like Jesus. Where's the good news in this? Well, I can guarantee you this. The good news is not in you and and me. The the good news is not centered in in us getting it right. The good news is not me standing here preaching a fiery sermon to ignite a passion in you to care more. That's not the good news. Because you and me, we will constantly get this wrong. We will constantly turn our gaze to the temple walls and the beautiful stones and the long prayers. The good news is that we have a Jesus who notices the widow. The good news is that we have a God that redirects our attention. The good news is that our God never takes his eyes off of those who are hurting 
and yearning. The good news is that we have a God who doesn't take God's eyes off the 22 veterans that commit suicide every day. The good news is that we have a God who doesn't look past anyone in their pain. The good news is that we have a God who came, who lived, who loved, who experienced our pain, who bore our afflictions, who was thrown in a tomb, and who three days later stood up and walked out. The good news is that the very worst thing that could ever happen to any one of us will not be the last thing because Christ has defeated death once and for all. The good news is wholly wrapped up in the character and the nature of our God. And this morning, that God wants to speak a word over your life. And that word is this, I love you. You are mine. I am with you. I will never forsake you. So open your eyes to a new and radiant vision. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I hope that today's message has brought comfort and inspiration to your life. Have a great rest of the week.